Please turn to Mark chapter 4 this morning. Mark's gospel chapter 4. Got to recuperate from that one. Once again, we have evidence of a deep bench at Tetelestai Church, and I'd like to thank the capable servants of Christ, fellow servants of our Lord Jesus that have stood in my stead in my absence. I have not heard all of the messages. I have heard one, and I will no doubt be listening to all of them very attentively. And I, once again, I stand in great appreciation of our congregation also for remaining attentive under the capable specialties of teachers. We all have our specializations, and I'm very grateful for this deep bench. I've received a lot of unsolicited positive comments, and those are the ones I like the best, and that's always a good thing. So, Pastor Stewart just breathed a sigh of relief. You know you did well anyways. But I appreciate all the men who have done that, and again, the congregation for staying true and staying faithful in my absence as well as in my presence, according to the principle in Philippians 2.12. A lot of Christians, I was thinking this morning, get down on ourselves because we don't know how to pray as we ought to, but we need to learn how to cultivate what's known as prayerful silence. If you're good at that, you're as good as the one who knows how to speak in prayer. So let's take a few moments of silent prayer before our message. Father, for the privilege of celebrating your son today, we thank you. For the privilege of celebrating his resurrection from the dead with hundreds of millions of Christians worldwide, we thank you. But more specifically, we thank you for the privilege of celebrating in the presence of these very people in our midst today. For your providence has allowed our gathering. You have called together this band of the elect. You've called us to authenticity and to truth and to the set-apartness that comes through grace and through the gift of your love. We pray now that you'll make us attentive, that you'll grant us the faith rest that's required for leisurely learning and yet disciplined learning of your love and grace and of the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we leave here, Father, today with a deeper appreciation, a deeper occupation with him, and a deeper response to your invitation to the higher call issued to every Christian in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen. It just dawned on me again just now and upon returning yesterday that I had just finished the most significant book that I've ever read apart from the Bible. It's called Method in Theology by Bernard Lonergan, and the reason for that was not so much the content, for he did not write the book in order to develop any content, but to show areas of specialization. And there were eight areas of specialization, and 
I think the Lord kind of reminded me of mine and really nailed it down and made it very specific to me, which was very important and very meaningful to me. It's an area of communication in the scriptures that I hope I can even make more clear to all of us. And it has dawned on me again as I hit the pulpit. I was reminded this morning again, and I think through recall of the Holy Spirit, that attentiveness does not end after a long haul of study, but that it remains our duty to be attentive all the way through and all the way up to the moment when we step into the pulpit as ministers of the gospel, and then to remain attentive throughout, for the Holy Spirit is constantly present to teach. Of some of the things that I have derived, I want to be teaching you. Today I am going to actually do an Easter special message in one regard, having to do with levels of appreciation of Easter and something I'm going to call the first precept of transcendence. Now, before we get started, I know there are some people that are relatively new here and even visitors are all, of course, entirely welcome. I'm going to be using some unfamiliar terms today, but as we progress as a ministry, these terms will be not only developed but thoroughly documented with Scripture, for they have to do with the intimacies of relationship with Jesus Christ and with principles of Christian living. And there is a terminology that is required for these. So if you hear some unfamiliar terms, it's territory with which I've become familiar and I will teach these things and again, not only develop them, define, describe, and explain them, but document them in scriptures. For there are five precepts of transcendence in Christian living that lead to the transformation of the believer into the Lord's likeness. And I'll say that again, there are five precepts governing rules of action. They are of transcendence because they cause the believer to go from one degree of glory to the next in our viewing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mirror of the Word. They lift us from horizon to horizon, and they take us from levels of appreciation both in height and depth in the Christian life. There are five precepts of transcendence in Christian living that lead to the transformation of the believer into the Lord's likeness. They are, and I've mentioned them previously, first of all, I'm not going to write them, I'll just say them because they're relatively brief, be attentive. This is the first law or precept of transcendence in Christian living that leads to the transformation of the believer into the likeness of his or her Lord. The second is be intelligent, but it is with an intelligence that I used to call and still do call responsible spiritual intelligence. Stop being foolish, says the Scripture, but be wise according to the will of God, about the will of God. And the third is be reasonable. The fourth is to be responsible, but there's a fifth, and it's to be in love. Be in love with God, and this is the transcendent life. It is when the believer loves the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And that's because the love of God has been shed abroad throughout the heart of that believer. And that is a love that is enabled, a love that takes the believer above the realms of common sense and above the realms of science, above the realms of theory, into new worlds in the interior soul, worlds of rapport and fellowship with God. And by that, I'm speaking of transcendence. I'm not speaking of it in terms of transcendental meditation. I'm not speaking of it in terms of new age weirdness. I'm speaking about it in terms of growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and being lifted up out of a horrible pit to stand upon solid resurrection ground. I'm only going to be involved with the first precept of transcendence today, and these others will be developed as we go on the times to come. Together, beginning Wednesday night, where our regular schedule will continue. Call Easter what it is. It's the Christian celebration of the resurrection from the dead of God's Son, Jesus the Nazarene. Easter is celebrated by hundreds of millions of Christians, all of whom are equally the beneficiaries of the grace of God and of God's gift of his love. But though all Christians are equally the recipients of God's grace and of God's gift of his love, each Christian celebrates Easter, or if they don't esteem the day, the notion of the resurrection of Jesus. And each one celebrates on his or her own level and from his or her own depth. The level or levels on which one celebrates Easter or any other notion of the scriptures depends on the differentiation of consciousness in the Christian. The differentiation of consciousness is the most important factor in Christian living. And I'm going to define, document that. I'll begin documenting it by saying that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a critic of the thoughts or the mentality and the intentions or the intentionality of the heart. And what happens is the scripture not just divides between soul and spirit, but it differentiates levels of consciousness in the believer. Many believers have merely a level of consciousness which we call common sense. Then they believe in Christ. They give assent or faith to his person and his true identity. They enter into salvation, but then they just make their Christian life a kind of a glorified common sense. And that's one level. It's a level from which there is little appreciation of what the scripture calls the deeper things of God, the more transcendent things of God. And so the depth depends upon the degree of understanding of the Christian that the Christian has attained by the adherence to the first precept of transcendence applied to spiritual truths. Be attentive. The first precept of transcendence is again, be attentive. 
And this is biblically illustrated through the lips of our Savior himself, the now risen Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, in Mark 4.24. I've made this translation according to sense and used the helpfulness of other translations as well as the Greek text in Mark chapter 4, for my specialty is not interpretation. My specialty is not research. It is not exegesis. My specialty is not history. It is not systematics. It is not foundations. It is not dialectic. All the specialties that other men have taken in, but my specialty involves all of these. For my specialty is communication. As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a teacher of his word. So using all those other specialties and using the most of all the aid and help and power of the Holy Spirit, this is the translation I've come up with from Mark 4.24. Pay attention to what you're listening to. That's good advice when they were listening to God in the flesh. When it comes to spiritual truths, when it comes to the Word, when it comes to the truth as it's embodied in Jesus, pay attention to what you're listening to. And then he says this, understanding will be given to you in the measure of attention you give. The word measure is used three times in the Greek in various forms. Whatever measure you give to it will be measured to you again in measure. It means literally in the level that you're attentive will be the level to which God will measure to you a depth of understanding. So be attentive. This is the first precept of transcendence. This is the first governing law of Christian living that results in the transformation of the believer into the likeness of his Lord in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Attentiveness then is very important. Let me read you the whole thing. Pay attention to what you're listening to. Understanding will be measured or given to you by the measure of attention you give. That's bringing in context into this verse. And then he closes by saying, this is the way understanding increases. The literal translation says more like, he that has will be given more. Well, what do you get from paying attention? You get understanding. He that is attentive will be measured in the measure of his attentiveness. And... To the one who gives attention and gains understanding, more understanding will be granted so that ultimately that believer begets, gets all filled up with spiritual understanding, as Colossians 1.9 says. Attentiveness is the first precept for a reason. Understanding on all levels, not least the spiritual level, or the theological level, or what some call the religious level, and religion, of course, needs a definition, increases, understanding increases as attention is paid to truth. Understanding is measured to the attentive in the measure of one's attentiveness. As understanding increases, one's horizon expands. That is, more understanding is given. 
And let him who glories, God says, glory in this, that he knows and that he understands me. So there is a horizon that's horizontal that expands. Our knowledge expands. And that gives us horizontal freedom. It allows us to advert or pay attention by recall to things that we've learned and to a greater measure of truth that we've learned. It's horizontal liberty. But then as we continue in understanding, God brings us to higher horizons of understanding. Some people won't want to go there with us. But we must go to the next horizon. That's a vertical liberty. As a Christian's consciousness gets differentiated by the word of God, for example, they only go so far, they realize that the level or the world or the realm of common sense thinking has some problems. I like to say that common sense is a problem because it's common. And it's also a problem because it's merely sense. It's not necessarily the responsible spiritual intelligence called understanding. In times like this, when our country is going through terrific depredation and very quick decline into forms of socialism that have failed elsewhere, in times like this, when there is a rapid social and cultural decline, there will be many who will call you to advert to or resort to common sense. But common sense has also the bias that, and the faulty assumption that it's omnicompetent. That is, that it can deal with every situation. But common sense is restricted. Common sense has a bias. Lonergan called one an egoist bias, another a general bias, and a group bias. So there is a level of common sense, and it can be chastened and purged of its biases, but it, it isn't omnicompetent. It can't deal with every situation. You can't even deal with a thing called resurrection by common sense because resurrection requires a level of thinking past common sense. And so the Christian who merely lives in common sense, we all have to in some measure, and it's just getting our head out of the sand or it's looking before we leap or he who hesitates is lost and some of these maxims that people live by. But there's also a higher call of God in Christ Jesus. We step to another horizon in which our, conscience, our consciousness is differentiated and we begin to understand the deeper things of God. And so we have another level of thinking to advert to, to resort to. The doctrinal level, the spiritual level, and there are many levels among those levels. And so this is not to say that common sense is wrong. It simply means that the Christian who grows in grace isn't confined to that realm with all its biases and restrictions. With the lifting of the Christian to a higher horizon comes a vertical liberty. You can live in the world of common sense, but a tragedy strikes you're going to have to advert to something beyond common sense because common sense, though it, you had it in your mind that it was omnicompetent, that it was competent to handle any situation, all of a sudden you're confronted with a situation that common sense isn't competent to deal with. 
It's an uncommon situation, and the problem with common sense is that it's common. Another thing Lonergan said is, to err is human, and common sense is very human. And it quickly deteriorates into common nonsense, and it's restricted. So, blessed is the Christian that can advert to a realm called faith rest, where he can commit the problems or the situations that are very difficult and uncommon to God, who gives back an uncommon grace, an unusual rest in the midst of tragedy or disaster or depredation or decline like we're facing today. For the answer to our country's problems is not political. It isn't a proliferation of tea parties. It is not criticism of government. Prayer for those in authority must go on, and we must be attentive to it. But the answer to the decline of a nation is a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus. It is what Colonel Thiem always taught as invisible impact of a pivot of mature believers. And many of these things that I appreciate having learned over the course of these past decades have come into a brand new focus for when you are called to higher horizons, you do not forsake the truths that got you there. They come into a sublation underneath and an integration and a higher integration of life. And they're incorporated. And so the answer to our decline now and meeting this decline is what Easter invites us to this year, a higher integration of human living in the man Christ Jesus called living on resurrection ground. This is what will preserve our nation, a culture, a generation, and our children and children children's generation. And this is what God calls us to. With the lifting of the Christian to a higher horizon comes a vertical liberty. With vertical liberty, a Christian is not confined to the realm of common sense or to science or to theory. She can advert to a realm that's higher than mere common sense. And again, this is not to say that this Christian lacks what we call common sense. It simply means that she is not confined to that realm with all its biases and restrictions. Because her consciousness has been differentiated by the rightly divided word of truth, she has vertical liberty to enter into a transcendent realm, say, of prayer. Or if you're like me and you're not good at prayer, my prayers are pretty much reduced to help and mercy. And I do pray, and I pray for you. But there's the expertise of prayerful silence. We forgot about that. In fact, that's the greater part of prayer, prayerful silence. But there are Christians who cannot advert to, resort to, or tend to beyond common sense to prayerful silence. 
And what if you don't know how to pray for what we know how to, what we're supposed to pray for? How we don't know how to pray? We don't know how to pray for what we're supposed to pray for. That's why the Spirit helps us. And in prayerful silence, He makes the utterance. In Romans 8, 26 to 27. The grace of God invades prayer. Do you know how to resort to that? It's a level, transcendent level of consciousness. Common sense can't be omnicompetent. It's not competent to deal with something that is a deep concern for a loved one of yours or that is a deep loss that you've just suffered. Tell me how common sense deals with that. Common sense, well, common sense can't even deal now with how to work the remote. I can't do that, and I've got common sense. It takes science. It takes expertise, especially when there's two of them. Now, prayerful silence. For those of you that have degraded yourselves for years and years about not knowing how to pray well, master the art of prayerful silence. You might not be as amazed at what you say as what you hear in the silence. And a result of responding to what you hear in the still small voice, in the quietness of your heart, you may end up responding with prayer and with proper requests. For we don't know what we ought what we to pray for as we ought to in Romans 8:26. But the Spirit helps our infirmity. So master the art of prayerful silence. It's a transcendent realm. And that, again, the word transcendent is stripped of its mystery and its mystical nature. It simply means a higher interior realm than common sense. So how many Christians are celebrating Easter today who are people of common sense, but once a year they think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which they can't make sense of, but they do believe and they are saved. And the Christian with many levels of consciousness, including scientific and theoretical and hypothetical and theological and pious or what we call religious and spiritual, is no better than that Christian, nor is he or she no worse, no smarter, but simply has a level to advert to and a depth of appreciation. The Christian who has been rightly taught and the Christian who has been highly and consistently attentive to the word of God and the word of truth that's been properly communicated by specialists and rightly contemplated by the Christian has likely been granted a high level of understanding and even higher horizons in which to think and act and be. Such a Christian doesn't merely believe in the resurrection of Jesus and then live in a realm or an interior world where only common sense pertains. The Christian not only believes in the resurrection of Jesus, that is this long attentive Christian, but also understands something of its mystery by the grace of God and by the aid of the Holy Spirit of grace. 
he, this Christian, may understand that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead involved not only a coming back to life of Jesus the Nazarene, but a bodily transformation to which he also may look forward. You see, there's a differentiation in the consciousness of this believer. He celebrates Jesus' resurrection not only on the level of the ascent of faith, but with the joy that apprehends a revealed mystery and that anticipates a disclosed destiny for himself. He's no better than the Christian with a still undifferentiated consciousness, nor is he any worse. But without the differentiated consciousness by the right division of the Word of God, there's no living of a spiritual life that transcends the realm of common and the sensible. This Christian is more liberated to move vertically from horizon to horizon instead of crystallize on one fundamental level. And this Christian is free on a horizontal as well as vertical horizon to contemplate the meaning of the most significant event in history with a higher level of understanding and with a deeper appreciation. And when I speak of that most significant event in human history, I speak of the resurrection of the man, Christ Jesus. Nor does this height or depth that the Christian receives or comes into ever pertain to pride of achievement. Therefore, we strip transcendence of the idea of the self transcending. For this is not the self transcending. This is the transcendence of the self. I'll say that again. This, when we speak of higher horizons, when we speak of deeper levels, as the Scripture does, the Lord is the lifter of my head. Doesn't mean necessarily literally that he lifts my head, although if my head is down in depression, he can lift it. But it speaks of lifting me to higher horizons. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. You enter into new horizons. At first, it's traumatic because there are those with whom, some of whom you serve Christ, some of whom have led you as leaders who have served Christ, who do not choose to go to this next horizon. But you go. You may lead others to go but it's a highly individualized calling. This height and depth does not pertain to pride of achievement, for the transcendence in question that we're talking about is not the self transcending higher, but it is the transcendence of self. For again, as Jesus illustrated the principle of self-transcendence, he said, he who loves his own life will lose it. And he who rejects or hates his own life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
That's scary for people who don't understand what Jesus is saying, but let's make an illustration. What if you love your life and don't want to go further than common sense, so you love your life in the world of common sense, and you do not accept the invitation to higher horizons of thinking with the mind of Christ, then the life that you love in the world of common sense will be lost to you when you face a situation that would demand your adverting to a, another horizon. And so we're talking about these laws of transcendence are the means of laying hold of that which is eternal life, that which is authentically life. For over the top of all five of these laws, be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, be in love. Over the top of all five of these, you can write, be authentic. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the truth or authenticity is embodied in him. And to be in his image is to be an authentic person. Dialectic is a specialty in some who are able to recognize and put doctrines like Gnosticism over and against doctrines like the doctrine of the apostles. And the collision produces an appreciation for the truth. It allows for the discerning of what is authentic and the result of a conversion from what is unauthentic or inauthentic and the result of no conversion. Much of the truth of the New Testament has come from the collision with the unauthentic. First John is the most notable example. We'll do more on that. The idea is that if we refuse understanding, we refuse the higher horizon and therefore the life that's really and authentically life. The kind that's a, to be experienced now, you see, for we're already on resurrection ground. And that adverts maybe to last year's Easter message, if there was one. The life experienced now is that eternal life which we lay hold of now in 1 Timothy 6.12 and 1 Timothy 6.19, even though it's the life that we will live in a bodily transformed existence in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. If we choose only to live in the realm of common sense with its mistaken assumption of omnicompetence, that it can deal with anything, then we lose the life that is authentically and really life. We don't lose the gift of eternal life, but we lose the ability to lay hold on that eternal, everlasting, and real and authentic life that's higher than the life of mere common sense. We lose it. If you hate your life, as I've learned to do, and we've all learned to do, we hate our life in this world, doesn't mean that we are people who don't affirm life, that we're not affirming of life, that we don't love life. We do love life, but we grow to hate our life when it's boxed in, in mere common sense, without the mind of Christ. We begin to hate 
just living on that level. And we say it's boring and it's useless and it's, I'm a failure in it. You're hating your life in that restricted world. And therefore, God calls you to a higher horizon, a vertical liberty. So you get not only a horizontal liberty from knowing a lot of the word of truth and being able to recall it, you have a liberty that's vertical where you can go to other horizons and advert easily to it and you enter into another interior world that others have refused to go to. And while they're losing their life in this world, you're finding your life in another interior world and you're as stable as can be in a time of national, societal, and cultural depredation. That's an Easter message because we're not only celebrating resurrection. This isn't just a celebration. This is an invitation. It's called the higher call of God, the ever upward summons of God from horizon to horizon in the integrated life that's integrated with Jesus Christ for Christ is our life. And when he who is our life appears, we will appear with him in glory, whether or not we grew from common sense to higher spiritual levels or whether we did not. If we choose only to live in the realm of common sense with its mistaken assumption of omnicompetence, then we're going to lose the life that's truly and authentically life indeed, meaning we won't be living it now. We will be postponing it until bodily resurrection. Failing to grasp the higher truth that we have already been risen together with Christ. And we are to be setting our thinking on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, call Easter what it is. The Christian celebration of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, God's Son, and our Savior from the dead. And call the resurrection of Jesus what it is. It's the conquest of death. And it's the conquest of everything that is death in this life. It's God's victory through Jesus Christ graciously and freely granted to us in the gift of God's love to us, which is shed abroad throughout our hearts in Romans 5, 5, making hope not disappointed. It's the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's a bodily resurrection that brought him into an incorruptible and immortal bodily humanity that's brought to light by the gospel. And it's the gospel that enlightens the Christian to the enormous implications of the resurrection of one Jesus the Nazarene from the dead. And if the Christian has been attentive to the word of truth, then perhaps she has been informed about a mystery, namely, that we'll all be changed. Just as the word of truth says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship exists in the heavens from which we also 
eagerly wait for a Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our present humble state to become similar in form and constitution to his own glorious human body, according to the operative power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, the Scripture says, For you see, as we believe that Jesus died and arose, so we also believe, and I may add, beyond the realm of common sense, that God will bring up from the dead those who are in corporate with Jesus and who have fallen asleep in him. The Christian who understands Easter and who's been somewhat illuminated by faith, for faith is the illuminator of understanding. That Christian will also have the motivating hope about which you have recently heard through Professor Sadar. I did hear his message. It was excellent. This Christian's faith will not only be an assent, A-S-S-E-N-T, to the divine truth of the resurrection, but it will yield a dynamic state of expectation that's called hope. When I was a young Christian, I was under the terrible pressure of preachers that suggested through their writings, some of them very pious men, and through preachings, that I was due for an act of surrender, that I had to surrender to God. And it's only 35 or so years later that I've realized that surrender is not an act, but a dynamic state in which you're always surrendering your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, and the bias of your common sense to the mind of Christ, and you're surrendering the presumption of your own omnicompetence that I can get by in this life by common sense to the omnipotence of God. Surrender is required of us, but it's not an act that brings us suddenly into a super spiritual state. It's a dynamic state where we're always giving our heart to the Lord, to the Father, as it were, as Proverbs 4 says, give me your heart, my son. Give me your intentions. For the scriptures can only be understood not by a study of faculty psychology, but by a study of intentional analysis. For be not unwise, but be wise and understanding what the intention of the Lord is, what the aims of Jesus were and are, what the intent of God is. And so, more than this, the Christian goes from the ascent of faith in the resurrection to a dynamic state of expectation called hope, but even more than this, the attentive Christian. Let him who has an ear be careful to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches seven times. The attentive Christian, the one whose measure of attentiveness to the word of truth is careful and continual, this Christian may also discern in his celebration of Jesus' resurrection not only a future expectation, but a present invitation 
to lay hold now in the present body of his mortal state of the authentic and abundant life that is to be his in bodily resurrection and forever. The life we can lay hold of now, the bodily resurrection is reserved for a time known only to the Father. To that Christian, to him or her, resurrection is a higher integration of human living, possible, probable, real, now. I'll say that again to that attentive Christian. And if you've been attentive, and this isn't reality to you now, it will be. The resurrection or resurrection itself as a concept and a notion is a higher integration of human living than is available, say, through merely being a person of common sense. As you can see, I'm not attacking common sense in this entire message. I'm simply trying to strip it of its biases, its restrictions, and sometimes even its arrogance. That higher integration of human living is possible now to those who are en Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus, in union with him, in association with him, incorporated with him. The notion of this higher integration of human living is not at all unrealistic. It is not unreasonable. For faith is reasonable. It is not unintelligent, for faith is intelligent. It is not irresponsible. For the fourth law of spiritual transcendence says, be responsible. Nor is the person who holds this notion disingenuous or fanatical. It's not fanatical or disingenuous to say, I'm on resurrection ground today. The notion of this higher integration of human living is not unrealistic. It's not unreasonable. And it's not unintelligent. It's only reasonable that God who raised Jesus from the dead would not only give us the hope of resurrection embodied in Jesus, but also the life of Jesus to be our life now. That's God's kind of reasonableness, God's kind of responsibility. So God invites us in this Easter, the one we call Easter 2009 in the reckoning of man, in this Easter, it's an invitation to walk on resurrection ground for God's own eternal word has said that we have been raised together with Christ and that Christ is our life and that our lives are hid with him and that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Easter, then, adverts to the past. It is attentive to the past to the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior from the dead. But Easter also draws our attention to the future, for we will all be changed from mortality to immortality, incorruptibility out from corruptibility, in order to be bodily like him if we've simply believed in Jesus' true identity. So Easter in its proper celebration, adverts to the future. 
And if Easter is called what it really is, it's an invitation to the higher call of God to us in Christ Jesus to enter a dynamic state in which we are not only in faith and in hope, but in love. God has prepared us then not just for the future that's foretold by the Old and New Testament. That's what we were dealing with in eschatology. God, and I'm ready to close, so hang in there. God has prepared us not just for the future that's foretold by God in the Old and New Testaments. He's prepared us to meet all the moments of the future that lead up to that ultimate future by living in the higher integration of human living, which is in Christ Jesus. He's prepared us to meet all the moments of the future that lead to the final future. My sister Becky, who surprised us this week, especially me on the beach, she just showed up on the beach, said to me, you know, with your, all your teaching on eschatology, we've learned what's going to be in the future. We've learned what it is. She goes, now tell us what to do now. <laughs> and she was referring to me not only as her brother, but as her pastor teacher, and as her pastor teacher who happens to be her brother. Now tell us what to do now. And I knew what she meant. She wasn't telling me that I had to tell you what to do, and I don't tell you what to do. She was saying, now we've got to learn how to live in all the moments that lead up to those moments, those ultimate moments you've been talking about. We're prepared to meet the future as it comes by living in that higher integration of human living where God is loved with all the heart and mind and soul and strength of the Christian. Where evil is overcome by divine good and where the kingdom of God is experienced in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's this higher integration of human living. And why is it an integration of human living? Because it is integrated with Christ, and it's integrated with the Holy Spirit, integrated with the Word of God, integrated with one another as the body of Christ, but it also is the higher integration that embraces lower manifolds of life, like the scientific mind and the theoretical mind or the historic mind. The individual who studies history in high school and pays attention to that discipline and studies it in college and is attentive to history has an, a, a differentiated consciousness about history and doesn't just take a test, as I heard on the radio recently, where young people say, we prefer socialism over capitalism, not knowing what capitalism is, what socialism is, and worst of all, not having a historically differentiated consciousness. People who have history and understand history and historicity and the past and have an understanding of history because they've been attentive to it know where history now is going, where it will go if certain things prevail and pertain, and where it will go if other things prevail and pertain. And if you have a further differentiated consciousness where you know the power of God in spiritual living, you know that if a population of Christians live 
live in the higher integration called resurrection, that it will invade and pervade quietly in society and preserve society from destruction and a nation from demolition and generations future from slavery. When history is shown to be what it really is in its retrospective from the new heavens and the new earth, there won't only be military heroes that have died on battlefields to preserve the human liberty of people. There will be the recognition of Christian heroes who lived in this higher integration of Christian living in union with Christ and were the reason for the preservation of their nation, of their generation, and the prevention of the enslavement of their children's generation and generations to come. But it will be suddenly that life that was hid with Christ in God will be shown to be what it was all along in retrospect. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? You are the lights of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good deeds and glorify my Father who is in heaven. Be attentive. And in closing, it is this higher integration of human living that is lived authentically in the man, Christ Jesus. And in the authenticity that he embodies, that quietly invades a nation in decline, a culture in depredation, a society in disintegration, and preserves that generation. The hearts of children are turned to their parents, the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of all to their maker, and all prepare to meet their God in Amos 4.10, 4.12. It's for this and many other reasons that the church, the body of Christ, and each of us as its members don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist for ourselves. We don't perish in depression in the pursuit of fun. We were kidding this week. Well, we can't stop for you. I'm sorry. We're in the pursuit of fun. We don't have time for compassion. Sorry, I just bought this belt. I'm not about to use it for a tourniquet on you. I'm wearing this belt in the pursuit of fun and totally depressed on my pursuit and totally frustrated in my frantic search for happiness. The Constitution of the United States gives you freedom for the pursuit of happiness. The Constitution, which is the Word of God, gives you freedom for the pursuit of God in which you will find your happiness. We don't exist for ourselves, but for the Lord whom God raised from the dead and on another level for all mankind. We exist for mankind in general who is in desperate need of faith hope, and love. And we exist for one another 
For seek not those things that are only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. No matter how a Christian leaves this life, through circumstances that are apparently tragic or extraordinary or unusual, that Christian is with the Lord face to face, and you will be reunited. A moment of faith, even under the hearing of a creed, can result in eternal life, even though it may not be laid hold of in this life. There is no greater frustration than the frustration of a Christian who has not laid hold of this life in time. And so they become contradictions and they undergo terrific burdens that the world does not undergo. And so we obey the higher call of God in Christ Jesus. We move from horizon to horizon. We may have to leave others who refuse that horizon, who aren't ready for that horizon at this time. But we go to those higher horizons because we do not exist for ourselves. We exist by him, to him, through him who has made us. But we also exist for others. We can't let what happened to Israel happen to the true Israel of God, forgetting that we exist for the nations, for the world, turning the mirror in on ourselves, being occupied with our own pursuit of fun or happiness. But rather, we look out to pursue God. And in that pursuit, we come to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We advert to other horizons that others have not come to. But because we have, we are the factor of preservation for others. Father, we ask you now to grant us the grace to be attentive, not only now but from here on in. And we ask, Father, that those who have not believed in Jesus as Savior will at least be attentive to this one truth, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only born son so that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. May those who have no hope of eternal life, no expectation of it, be granted an intelligibility, be granted something that's understandable, that God has manifested himself to man in his son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, as man, went to the cross to intercept 